Thank you. Hey, thank you. Hey, ladies. Good morning, Atlantic Canada. And I say good morning because it is morning. I was spent the last uh, week in BC, so on my body clock, it is 5.15. <laughs> so I'm so glad to be with you. This is my first time in Atlantic Canada. Did you believe that? I'm born and raised in Edmonton and my first time out to the real part of the country, right? <laughs> For where it all started 150 years ago, this great country, and I've heard of Charlottetown forever, and now this is my very first time. So I get to do the Anne of Green Gables tour and all the obligatory touristy things uh, later on in the week, and I'm looking forward to that immensely. Uh, we're going to be talking today about grace, that God revealed in gender, and that God actually, when he created male and female, he created us to be a story and a symbol and a display of his grace story, and the whole story of Jesus Christ and the church, and the story of redemption, the story of grace is actually revealed in gender. I want to, I want you to go back to that first slide, if you could please. Um, What is this? My husband, uh, who we're dragging, kicking and screaming into the 21st century, he just got over learning how to use a fax machine, and so now he has an iPhone, and it's stressing him out. And, but he's, he's actually quite enjoying it, and he's started into the whole texting thing, and he's texting with my children, and one day, and it wasn't all that long ago, he goes, Mary, what does it mean when they send a colon and a bracket? What does that mean? Well, it's a smiley face, right? And we know that because we text, and that's a symbol that means something to us. But that symbol didn't mean anything to him. It meant a colon and a bracket, which, what does that mean? He didn't know. And so for us who are more tech-savvy, we understand the meaning of that symbol, but for someone who's never been exposed to that symbol, they don't know what it means. So if you were to take someone from inner Borneo who has never seen a car and you're to bring them and to put them in front of a traffic light and they were to see green, red, and yellow, what would they think? They wouldn't have a clue what that meant, right? Because it's a symbol and it's a symbol that points to something else. It means stop, go, or go faster. (laughs) But to... To them, if they haven't been in you know, this kind of a context, they don't know anything. They haven't been educated as to the meaning of the symbol. And so this morning, I want to tell you that male and female, as God created us, we were created as symbols to tell and to point to the story of the gospel. That when God created us as male and female, he created us almost as an object lesson that we see every day that tells the story of Christ and the church. When he created male and he created female, he was looking forward to the greater cosmic love story between Christ and the church. And so we see history starting off, and you know what? I'm hot up here. You don't mind if I take my sweater off, do you? Okay. Um, we, We see history starting off with God creating male, female, and a marriage, because history is going to end with what? 
a marriage. History will draw to a close with a marriage. Who's, who's the male? Jesus. Who's the female? The church. And there's a marriage. When we get to heaven, we're going to a big wedding party. We're going to see the consummation of Christ and the church, the, the unity of Christ and the church. So we're going to turn to the book of Genesis. If you have Bibles with you, grab them. And we're going to walk through the creation story And we're going to walk through the creation of male and the creation of female. And I want you to keep in mind that when God was creating male and female, he was doing so with a view towards the gospel, with a view towards Christ and the church. And so he was making these symbols and to those of us who, who, who don't get the symbol, we don't really see it, but if, if we study Genesis and we study the rest of Scripture, we have our eyes open to this great mystery, Ephesians 5 calls it. This great mystery, which is male and female in marriage, but really, what is the mystery? Christ and the church. In Ephesians, we're... All the dots are connected for us. And a lot of people throughout history didn't really get it. And at at the time of Christ, it was all revealed. Okay, so book of Genesis. And we see in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 7, that God said, let us make man in our image. Okay, us, let us make them in our image. Who's God talking to? God is talking to God, right? The Trinity, God is talking to God. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. And there's something incredibly important here. Um, There's something about the us of God, something about the nature of the relationship between the Trinity that God intended to stamp on male and female, and it provides the blueprint for how he created us as male and female. And who we are and how we relate as male and female is an object lesson. It's a parable, and it tells this very important story, and this story about the character of God, who God is, how Jesus relates to the Father, and then the whole pattern kind of continues on down the line, how Christ relates to the church and and the structure within the church and then male and female and marriage, and we have this symbol stamped all over the place. And, And it becomes more evident as we walk our way through Genesis. Now, in Romans... 120, Paul explains that there are two very important truths about God that are displayed in creation for everyone to see. And this is uh, in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. It's in the context of sexuality and brokenness and sexuality that, he, that Paul is saying this. And he says, For ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. So people are without excuse. So basically, what Paul is saying is, this symbol is everywhere. This symbol is in creation. The symbol about who God is and his power, his plan. There are symbols there that are evident for everyone to see since the creation of the world. So we're, gonna, we're, we're going to have a look at those symbols. And I think that as we go on, you're going you're gonna to see that, that who we are as women 
who you are as a woman, when you get up in the morning and you look into the mirror and you see a female body and you get dressed and you go about your daily business and you see men and women who live in male bodies or female bodies, and when you observe the fact that God created the male body and the female body with corresponding pieces that fit together like a puzzle, and and when, he see, when you see all that and when you see that men and women join together in marriage according to God's plan, all of these things tell a story, and they tell the story of the gospel. And the reason, I think, why Satan in our culture is so trying to deconstruct masculinity and deconstruct femininity and change the meaning of what it means to be a man or change the meaning of what it means to be a woman and and say that marriage doesn't matter you can have two women marrying each other or men marrying each other, that it doesn't matter it's all, all okay is because he's trying to destroy the symbol that God has in place the picture and the image that God instituted from the very beginning that tells a bigger story and points to the gospel. All right, so let's go to Genesis, and we're going to actually uh, spend most of our time here in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 1 tells us about the equality of male and female, male and female created in the image of God. We are co-heirs, co-bearers of the image of God. And then chapter 2 does like the sports replay. Now, how many of you have kids in sports? One, two? (laughs) Don't you do sports out here in the Atlantic Canada? Sports? You know, ball, hockey? (laughs) We we do sports a lot. And I actually have um, a son, my middle son, plays in the NHL. So he plays for the Ottawa Senators. And I have come to... Yay! We got... All right, good. Born and bred, Ottawa. I've come to really appreciate the the whole concept of the, the instant replay where, you know, you're watching, and you see it happen, and then all of a sudden it stops, and the announcers, when there's a really important play, the announcers rewind the tape, and then you get to watch it slow-mo and from every angle. And that's kind of what Genesis 1 and 2 are like. So Genesis 1 kind of gives this overview of all of creation. You know, God said, let there be light. God's, and so boom, 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 boom. All things are happening so fast, and then it's stop, rewind the tape, Something really important happened. We're going to take a look at it in slow-mo. And that's Genesis chapter 2, the creation of male and female. We're going to look at it in detail and in slow motion. And I think that every act of God was intentional here and was important. And that's why we get to see it, as it were, in slow motion and up close. So we see the equality and the, uh, of male and female, and that male and female were created both to have dominion over the earth, and God, in cre- both created in God's image, but then in chapter 2, we see that there are some differences. We zoom in, and we see that there's slow-mo, and there are some differences in how God created male and female, and that God very intentionally created us different, and the reason he created us different, again, was to tell the story of Christ and the church. Okay, so we're going to have, as we go through Genesis chapter 2, we're going to look at six points on how God created male, and then another six points on how God created female. And so the first point that we see is found in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man 
of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So the first point is that the man was created first. The male was the firstborn. And that's an important point, and you may think that, that, you know, who cares, what does it matter who's created first? But Scripture tells us that, that this point is not trivial and it's not inconsequential, that it's really important. The firstborn son held a really unique position in Hebrew society, in the Hebrew family. He ranked highest after the father, and he carried the weight of his father's authority on his shoulders. He was the one who was responsible to carry out his dad's instructions and act on his dad's behalf. He was responsible for the oversight, for the well-being of the family. He was also the representative of all the other children in the family. And what happened in the family was his responsibility. The buck stopped with him. Now, my husband is a firstborn, and he says that this actually was really acted out really well in his family because whenever his siblings got in trouble, he got in trouble. It's like, why didn't you make sure your brother didn't do that? And and, uh, his dad took him to the wall for that. So now this wasn't just a cultural quirk on behalf of the Hebrews. This was, God instructed them on this and instructed them that this firstborn carried a special position and a special responsibility. So I want you to think back to your Sunday school history and think back to the story of the Exodus and Egypt and the Pharaoh and that whole, um, all the plagues and everything. And when Pharaoh refused to, to release the Hebrews from bondage, the Lord sent the angel of death to kill who? Why? Not just the firstborn, firstborn what? Firstborn sons. Now why the firstborn sons? Well... It's because they were the family representative. So to pay the, the, the price for the sin, they were going to bear the consequences and bear the, the penalty for the sin. The firstborn son would bear the penalty. And they were destined to pay the price for Egypt's sin. So Adam and Eve, when God created Adam and Eve, he created Adam first. And Adam was the firstborn of the human race. And he was responsible for the oversight of the well-being of the human family. So God held Adam accountable for the fall, even though Eve sinned first. So Bible says, in Adam all die. So Eve was held personally responsible for her sin. But who took the blame for humanity falling? Adam did. Okay, why not Eve? Adam was the firstborn son. And so he bore the responsibility for all of humanity falling. Scripture is really clear on that. And the authority and responsibility that Adam had as firstborn human son pointed to the position of Jesus Christ, who was the firstborn, the only begotten son of God, who took on and became what? Sin for us. And he became what? The last Adam, right? He became, sorry, the second Adam. The, he became, he took, he, he undid what Adam did. He went into that firstborn son position and he undid, he reversed it by his act on the cross in terms of that, he redeemed it. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. Okay, 
So what does all this have to do with male and female? And what does it have to do with us? Well, it has a great deal to do with us. Because the New Testament teaches that Adam's position of firstborn has ongoing implications for every male that ever lived, all human males. The responsibility that God put on Adam's shoulders extends in one way or another to all men. And Paul tells Timothy that the reason males bear the responsibility for the spiritual oversight of God's family in the church was that Adam was formed first. There's a connection. There's a connection between Adam being formed first, Adam being male, and men having to take responsibility for the spiritual oversight of the church. The Bible also teaches that every male bears responsibility for the oversight of his own individual family pod, his own family unit, and that's in Ephesians chapter 5. The buck stops with the guy. He's responsible for what goes on in his household. And what's more, this responsibility seems to extend in a general way to all men to take initiative to, to step up to the plate, to man up and look up for the welfare of all those around them. Okay, what about that, that uh, phrase, man up? What does that mean? What does it mean when you tell someone, come on, man up? Take responsibility. Lead, take initiative, step up, step up to the plate. Do we have, what do you mean, woman up? What does that mean? You see, the man up, I think, we have that phrase, that expression, because intuitively we know that that's what is important for man to be, is to step up the plate, to take initiative, to man up. And if a guy isn't doing that, he's not fulfilling who he ought to be as a man. He's not doing what he should do as a man. So exercising godly initiative and oversight is a big part of what manhood is about, and it's what we mean intuitively when we say to a guy, come on, step up to the plate, be a man. Okay, so that second point. The man was put in the garden, Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden. So this is a really interesting point, and, I, and you may not have ever thought about it before, is that God took the man and put him in the garden. So he didn't create man in the garden. He created the male out in the wild from the dust of the open desert. And then he led his firstborn male away from his place of creation and put him in the garden of Eden. He took the man, put him in the garden. And God put him in the garden. Now, a garden is a plot of ground protected by a wall or a hedge. It's an area with specified boundaries. He didn't put him in the land of Eden. He put him in the garden in the land of Eden. So it was a specific place in the land of Eden with boundaries. It was like a homestead. So why is this significant? Because later in the chapter, we see that when a man gets married... He leaves the place where he was created in order to initiate a new family unit. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. He starts a new pod. We call this in the Cassian household pod theology. We have raised our sons saying that, yes, one day you will be the head of your own pod. And so you better, you know, get the education you need. You better get what you need in order to to look after your pod, and it is your pod. It's not our pod, it's your pod. 
And so there's this specified place. It's as though God puts them in this new position of responsibility. And what's more is this image seems to foreshadow Christ leaving the home of his father in heaven in order to pursue his bride, the church. So the Lord set the male up in his own place in the garden, in his garden, to be head of a new family unit. But before God presented him with a wife, created him a wife, he took some time to teach him more about the specific roles and responsibilities of a guy, what it meant to be a man. So here we see in Genesis 2.15, the male was commissioned to work. The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it. Now, this word translated work in Hebrew is the common word for tilling the soil, for labor. But here's the thing. It contains the idea of serving someone other than yourself. Okay? It's a really important. You're not working just because you want to buy some new Camaro or toy or, or video games. You are working for Working for, working on behalf of, working to serve someone else. This word also frequently describes the duties of priests in worship. So the man's life in the garden wasn't supposed to be one of idleness. He was going to have work to do. He wasn't supposed to lounge around the couch watching TV, having people serve him. God's plan from the very start was that the man would work to provide for his family's needs. So God created men to be the providers, physically as well as spiritually. Now, that doesn't mean that women don't work. Women can work, and women work hard. It just means that men are connected to work in a different way than women are. They're just wired differently when it comes to work. Um, Men have much more... If a a guy is unemployed, you ladies who have had men who are unemployed, it it affects them at a way different level. There's something work that's tied to a guy's identity and oftentimes if a man and a woman are married and the woman makes more you know if a guy makes more it's hey great if uh, it will actually bug him a little bit right it'll just bug him a little bit because he is wired to work in a way that is different then a woman is wired to work. We'll see later on that women are wired for relationships in a way that's different than men, but men are wired for work in a way that is different than women. So men have this this inward wiring to, to look after, to work, and to provide, and to look after their families. Uh, the fourth point, male was commissioned to protect Lord God put him in the garden to work it and keep it, Genesis 2.15. Now, God wanted him to keep the garden, and keep is also a really interesting word because it means to be in charge of, to protect, to look after, to provide oversight, to be attentive and, and protect the people and property under your charge, physically and spiritually. So the Lord created men to be protectors. He gave them bodies that are stronger than women he gave them uh, their bodies are more suited for a fight and of course this doesn't again exclude women from being protective I mean all you mama bears out there know if anyone comes near your children you're going to claw their eyes out right but there's just something about a guy that's wired for protection 
I mean, if we were to be laying in bed, a husband and a wife, and it's like, okay, and you hear a burglar coming in the door, would you expect the wife to go, okay, or the husband to roll over and go, okay, it's the third of the month, you you have duty on the odd days, you go up and take care of it. (laughs) No. I mean, even if the woman was physically larger or stronger, who would be the one going to fight the burglar? The man. You see, saw this, uh, you see this happening um, even at that movie, what was it, The Dark Knight, where the guy came in to the movie theater and started gunning down people? It was mostly men that died. Why? Because they were throwing themselves in front of their women to protect them. They're just wired for it. That's what they're wired for. And I think of a story of, of uh, my husband, Brent, and you can rib him about this later. Maybe I shouldn't even tell. No, I'll tell it. It's just too good of a story. It's pretty funny. Is we were laying uh, in, in the depths of Alberta way back in the days of um, early morning milk delivery, and, and I was up nursing my babe in arms and uh, half asleep nursing my baby, and all of a sudden I heard, uh, commotion at the door, a burglar at the door, somebody trying to get into our house. Well, I panicked, and I was really, really upset. I ran upstairs, and, Brent, 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 there's somebody breaking into our house. You know, there, there's a burglar breaking into our house. You got in, and, and, and he, of course, was, you know, in la-la land, dead of sleep, snoring up a storm. And so I wake him up from this deep, deep sleep, there's someone at the door. There's someone at the door. You know, it's a dark night. And so he jumps out of bed, looks around for his glasses, can't find them, but reaches under the bed and grabs the baseball bat that he keeps under there just for this very purpose. <laughs> Knew he was going to need it someday. And so he has his baseball bat, and he jumps out of bed, and he's running stark naked without his glasses down the, down the stairs with his baseball bat, and he gets to the door. There's still somebody trying to get into the door, and he throws the door open, and it's the milkman. <laughs> Which is why there's no milk delivery in Alberta anymore. But guys are wired to protect. You know, you, if you are, are married to a guy and he's got like, especially for his daughters, oh man. My son, my oldest son uh, just turned 30. They just had their first baby, baby girl. And uh, first thing he says to me is, man, I think I'm going to have to buy a gun. Because <laughs> all of a sudden it's like this protective thing. This, this thing that God has poured into him is just blossoming and coming into him in, in terms of who he is as a man. I want you to bring up the next picture. Um, this is a picture, I hope you can see it. You can't see it very well. Well, I'll explain what it is. It's a picture that my little five-year-old son, or Jonathan, he's now 25, he drew when he was like about five years old. And I put it in my box of special things. And it's, it's actually a, um, can you maybe just dim the lights at the front here? Would that make it easier to see it? Uh, it's still not great. But what it is, is a picture of our family out at Garner Lake, which is uh, the family cabin, my grandpa's cabin. We go out to Garner Lake. 
And we're, this is the water. You can see this swirl at the bottom. There's water, and there's a big storm. So the sky is all black, and there's things coming down. That's like the storm, and it's raining. And all of us, like we're in the water, and we're in trouble because there's this big storm. And you can see four of us here in the water. Myself, I'm the one, long one with the more hair, third one over, <laughs> and my three sons. So you've got... Here over on the left, the son, Matthew, my middle son, uh, he's way over because Jonathan was fighting with him that day. He's way over. He's, ah, uh, he's got a really unhappy face and he's going under. And then my middle son, or my oldest son over on the right here, he's going oomph, gurgle, he's going under. He's got a very unhappy look on his face. I'm next to my son Clark, and I'm yelling, help, and I'm going under a very unhappy look on my face. And then Jonathan, who drew the picture, second over, he's got a big smile on his face. He's calling help, and the reason he has a big smile on his face is because over here on the pier holding the cat (laughs) is my husband, yelling out, here I come, John. (laughs) So I asked him to explain the picture. And he says to me, well, we're all drowning, but Daddy will come and save me because that's what dads are for. It didn't even dawn on him that his dad can't swim and I'm the swimmer. (laughs) And I'm right beside him. If anyone's going to save him, it's going to be me, not his dad and the cat. (laughs) Cat can't swim either. But here's this little five-year-old with this concept, Daddy will come save me because that's what dads are for. And we all intuitively know even if we didn't have a good dad, even if the man in our life is not the way he ought to be, we have this intuitive sense that it should be this way. That the guy should be our hero and our protector and look out for us and work for us. And when it's out of order, we feel it. Because intuitively, we sense that that's not how it should be. That's what dads are for. My little five-year-old sensed it right off. That's, it's different. What dads are for is, is just a bit different than what moms are for. It's not the exact same thing. And God created us that way. The fifth point, the male received spiritual instruction. Genesis 2, 16 and 17, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. See, before the woman arrived on the scene, God explained the rules of the garden to the man, and it was up to him to pass on this spiritual instruction to his wife. Now, that's not to say that the man interacted with God 
on her behalf. She had her own relationship with God, and the Lord held her to account personally. She, she had her, it's not like she went through the, the mail to relate to God. That's not true at all. But there was this unique thing that was going on that, that as leader of his newly minted household, the man had a special responsibility to learn and understand the ways of the Lord. And this was so that he could fulfill his commission to provide spiritual oversight and protection. So he was given this spiritual instruction. And woman certainly was given instruction as well. But here you see, before she was even around, there was just something, this little interesting little twist here that happened. And here's another thing that happened, the sixth point, that the male learned to exercise authority. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. That's Genesis 2, 19 and 20. This always has perplexed me because, I, you know, I would think women have got, you know, a greater vocabulary and greater verbal abilities. So if God was really interested in doing this job quickly and well, he would have had the woman name all the animals. But she wasn't even around yet. And I think what this was was a training exercise. Because naming something means exercising authority over it. It indicates that you have some sort of authority, you are in a position of authority, and I think that the Lord God wanted his firstborn son to know how to exercise authority well and with kindness and with um, discernment and with wisdom. And so this was like a training exercise where God oversaw his firstborn son naming, playing the name it game, and, uh, and naming these animals and it, to exercise authority in a godly manner. Because this firstborn was going to have a unique responsibility to govern, and the Lord wanted him to govern well, according to the heart of God. Not with selfishness, not with self-interest, but with pouring out himself on behalf of others. So here we have this thing going on. We have the man, all this happened with the man, and he was the firstborn, but he had no kin. He was the head of this household. He was the head of this new pod, but there was no one in the pod. He had this, he was wired to provide and to work, but there was no one to provide for. He had thought of all these new ideas, but he didn't have anyone to share them with. He was, he was wired to protect, but there was no one to look after. And he was bursting at the seams with all of this desire and all the stuff that God had poured into him to give, and there was no one to give it to. There was nowhere for Adam to put everything that he was. And so as the day wore on, it became painfully obvious, and I think that the Lord could see it on Adam's face. I would think, even as we read Scripture, that we see that this was the only thing that was not good. Everything in creation was amazing, but this was not good. And the, I think that the, the, the reason that the Lord delayed all this was that he wanted his firstborn to catch a glimpse, just a glimpse and a glimmer of what it was all about, and a glimpse of God's final and, and, and most important work, and he wanted 
his firstborn to feel the longing intensely to love and want a soulmate more than he wanted anything else and with more passion and so much passion that he was willing to pay the ultimate price to get it because God knew that he was going to wound his firstborn in order to make him a bride. And so when the time came, God said to his firstborn, touched him or did whatever he did, and he fell down as if he were dead onto the moss. And then the Lord God took his hand, and what did he do? Pierced his side and pulled out a piece of rib, bloody rib, and made the woman. Now what does that imagery bring to you your mind piercing the side of one who lay like like dead does that not christ in the church yes that's exactly what happened to christ on the cross his side was pierced right his side was pierced he died and he died so that the church may come to life so that there may be life given, so that there may be a bride. Without Christ's death, there was no bride. So this is the story right up in here here in creation. We see this, this first glimmer of the gospel. We see this glimmer of the great picture to which this story of male and female pointed. And I wonder, I often think, I wonder as God began to form the woman and to create the woman to craft her, I wonder what he was thinking. I bet he was looking forward to that to, to, that to which this whole thing pointed. That he was looking forward to not the woman that he was creating, but to the woman, the bride, that would come for his firstborn son, Christ the church. So let's take a look at the creation of woman. Uh, this, the female was created from the male. The Lord God ca- caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman. So in our culture, um, remember where you came from as a common admonition not to look down on your origins or your beginnings. My son is a professional hockey player, and I always tell him, you better not get too big for your britches. Like, you remember where you came from. You have a spirit of humility, and, and, and you honor and respect where you came from, your beginnings. And I think the same sort of idea is present in the creation of female. Because woman was drawn from man's side, it was appropriate for her to have an attitude of respect towards him. He was the firstborn. In the New Testament, we see that the fact that she was created from him and not the other way around is the basis of a wife honoring the authority of her husband. So man was not made from woman. Woman was made from man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. That's what it talks about in 1 Corinthians 11, that there's something important there. There's a principle that's important there. And I think in our culture, we just see this such great disrespect on the part of women toward men. And I think that's entirely inappropriate for a Christian woman to be disrespectful of men. It's because we are to be respectful of them. God created us to respect have an attitude just to have this softness about us where we have an attitude of respect and honor 
Um, second point, female was made for the male. Then the Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him, Genesis 2.18, for him. So she was created for him, that is on account of him. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11.9 reinforces that. He's, man was not created for the woman, rather the woman was created for the man. And Paul explains that this is the basis of a wife respecting the authority of her husband. Now, for most of us, this whole idea of woman being created for the man sounds pretty negative. I know for me it's like, what? Because it appears to imply that, oh, well, she's created for him, so he gets to use her or abuse her at will. He can do whatever, you know, pick up my socks, blah, 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 blah. But that idea isn't actually present here. It, it, it actually means more direction. She was created for him or towards him or with reference to him or on account of him. She was created because of him. His existence led to her existence. It didn't happen the other way around. And we're talking, remember that this is reflecting the story of Christ and the church. And our adverse reaction to the idea that we were created for man serves to underline just how very far we've fallen from God's original created design. And when the first bride was created and presented to the first man, I'm sure she was thinking, wow, this is amazing. I know when my son got married, I remember um, the first son getting married particularly. It was a particularly strong emotion for me that day. And when I saw the doors of the church open and Jacqueline walk down the aisle, and if I were to ask her, I could, I, you know, looked at, took a peek at her and then at my son's eyes and you know just the look of look on his face I I love that look on the groom's face when it's like (laughs) and he is just so eager here's his future bride and I bet if you were to have tripped her and asked her or stopped her and said excuse me Jacqueline on her way down the aisle excuse me Jacqueline were you created for this guy what do you think she would have said You bet. You bet. I was created for him. For union, relationship, for a coming together. And there's another critically important point here. Being created for someone indicates that God created the female to be a highly relational creature. We gravitate towards connecting. And a lot of uh, women in fact, will gravitate toward connecting. They'll connect with the wrong kind of guys or they're drawn into wrong kinds of relationships just because there's such a drive to connect. And you know that, that, that women, we're just connectors. I mean, we, we just like that kind of girlfriend kind of thing where we talk and we meet and we, we join and, and we have buddies and girlfriends and, and it's, it's, it's different for guys. And, you know, we have a, a hot tub out in our backyard, and, um, um, you know, Brent will have some guys over, and they'll, they'll sit there in the hot tub. <laughs> it's pretty quiet. And if I have a bunch of girlfriends over, we will sit there in the hot tub, and it's blah, 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 right? We're relay like, and, and uh, or Brent will go out with the guys, so what do you talk about? football, (laughs) 
Hockey, it's just not the same. It's different. Women are created to be connectors and relators because we're created for, created for relationship. And so in contrast to the male, our identities aren't based on work nearly as much as they're based on how well we connect in relationships. We're the relators, responders. We have this soft, open space in our hearts that long to be filled. Number nine, the female was created to help the male. Genesis 2.18, a helper fit for him. God created woman to be a helper, and helper is another word that begs explanation. It's not a term that indicates a lesser status or that the help that a woman provides is trivial. The Hebrew word is a very powerful one. It's, it's most often used um, in other references with the Lord being our helper and actually used for all three members of the Trinity being a helper or help. So does the fact that women were created to be a help mean that they exist to serve the selfish ends of men? I mean, if I am created as a helper, does that mean I have to help my husband pick up his dirty underwear, help him, you know, help him by doing all his grunt work? Is that what it means? Is helper mean like, well, he's the plumber and I'm the plumber's helper? I get all the dirty work? No, I don't think that's what it means at all. There's a clue in the qualifier, a helper fit for him. She's a helper fit for him. So it literally means like opposite him. It's like an image in a mirror. And the term is unique to Genesis. It expresses this notion of complementarity. That she's not exactly like him. She's like opposite him. She's a helper, but more importantly, she's a helper alongside And the alongside part is extremely important. So the purpose of a woman helping man isn't about the man. It isn't about exalting him. And here's a question for you. What is the woman supposed to help a man do? What? Be relational? Be God created him? Okay. Sorry? Create the pod. Yeah, he can't make a pod without her. (laughs) Right? How's he going to be fruitful? You're right on that. But the biggest overriding thing of all those is to glorify God. Right? She helps him. Together, when they are together, they achieve a greater, nobler, eternal purpose that is far more significant than their own existence. A man and woman together. So she struggles alongside for the same purpose for which he struggles. She helps him fulfill that purpose. And what is that purpose? Glorifying God. Isaiah talks about here, bring my sons, bring my daughters that I created for my glory. So what woman helps man do is not about helping man fulfill his ends it's about helping him together fulfill God's ends fulfilling the purpose of glorifying God fulfilling the purpose of displaying God the purpose of making God known the purpose of striving together and yes you're right creating children for the glory of God and of course God's ultimate purpose is spiritual children And that's why it doesn't matter if you're single, you are also part of this purpose. 
Paul said, it doesn't matter. Don't get too worked up if you're a single because, in fact, you're in an advantageous position because you have more time and more energy to commit to that eternal marriage towards all these temporary earthly marriages point. You have more energy for the real thing instead of this temporary, getting distracted with the temporary one. So our purpose as women is to help men glorify God and to make God known and to display the gospel in who we are as women. And we do that from a very unique angle in a way that men cannot. And women do it, men do it in a way that we cannot. And so together, when we are together as male and female, we are able to tell the gospel story. We struggle alongside for the same purpose. Here's the next point. The male, female deferred to the male. The Lord God brought her to the man. Then the man said, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Genesis 2.23. See, I think the first male and female knew intuitively how to act. And when God brought the woman to the man, uh, and uh, Adam knew immediately, he broke into this spontaneous poem, and he starts waxing eloquent, all Shakespeare-like-ish. And she's woman, bone of my bone, and flesh of my flesh. And then he names her. He gives her a name which is indicating that he understood that there was a certain authority that he had in that marriage relationship. And how did she respond? Well, how would she respond nowadays if you had this going on? I am strong, I am woman, hear me roar. You're not going to name me, right? I have a name or two for you, right? (laughs) That's how we're taught as women to respond. But no, she intuitively knew that no, this is good. This guy is great. This is this is uh, this is good. This is the way it is. This is the way she had that spirit about her, and uh, she deferred to him. And the New Testament upholds this kind of attitude in marriage for women. It says that this is a beautiful and a precious thing that that God created that is good. And when we step into it, we're going to see blessing in our lives and marriages. Number 11, point 11. Uh, Female was the male's perfect counterpart. So I told you he waxed eloquent. He kind of broke into this poem. This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, Isha, because she was taken out of man. And that's Genesis 2.23. Now, those two words are really important. Um, Woman, Isha, and man, Ish, Hebrew, it's a play on words. He called himself, the names are are very similar. Appears to be a, a really profound play on words that he had. But there's an interesting twist because there's a feminine ending on, on the female's word, on name, and the root of the name for female means softness, soft. And the root for the word for ish, for man, means strength, comes from the root of strength. And so you see right here that there was, there was a counterpart, there was a difference, and the, the implication is that, 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 that Adam immediately recognized that there's a difference, that woman is softness and he is strength, and together they're, they're just counterparts to one another. And the bodies of male and female reflect the idea of this complementary distinction. A man's body 
physiologically even, is stronger. And he's, he's built even anatomically to move out and toward the woman. And the woman is built f- physically to receive the man and to be soft and to have this softness about her. I had to laugh yesterday when we heard, um, it was Scott, right? Talking about the big bosom and I'm thinking... <laughs> <laughs> and they, but this truth it's like there's this softness about us and and some of us are softer than others but God created us to be the soft ones to be the ones who are the embracer to to have that space even our wombs even to have that space that arm, that long, that, that place that longs to be filled. Hey, I'm going to get you to do a real quick exercise. This is fun. I love this. Put your arms out, okay? Anybody notice anything about my arm? If I were to draw a straight line here, it's crooked, right? Your arm is crooked. And there's probably, this is called my carrying angle. Every woman has one. Sometimes Some are more profound than others. But it's your carrying angle. It's so, so that when you hold a baby, it can nestle right in there and nurse. Okay, now next time I want you to go check it out with, your, with a guy. Go grab a guy and go tell him, put your arm out. Okay, you put his arm out. And you will notice that he only maybe has like a five-degree carrying angle. It's way less. It's almost, his arm is almost straight which is why a guy looks so awkward holding a baby and a woman has so much trouble throwing a football, okay? It's like God created us, everything about us, to have this space, to be the nurturers, to be the soft ones. doesn't mean weak, and we're going to be talking about that in our next session. It means there's a real strength that God wants us to be, these steel magnolias, who have real strength and grit and backbone, but to have this womanliness, that softness, and to be his daughters. He created us to be his girls. All right, final point. The female was created in the garden. The female. So this is really interesting because you remember the male was created outside the garden. The female was created in the garden. So she's the softer and the more vulnerable one. She was created in the garden, in the place of safety. And she was in a, created in a place that was already under the protective authority of her husband-to-be. See, the male leaves his protective sphere of his household to become a protector of a new household. And the woman doesn't leave, we're told. She's under the, the constant protection of the authorities that God has built into her life. See, the Lord wanted to ensure that this soft one, this one that, that is, is more vulnerable um, to being hurt, is more delicate, that would always be loved and protected and cherished and kept safe. And the fact that, and, and I think that it's a, a horrible travesty to God's plan and God's design when woman isn't, when a woman is abused or when a woman is um, put down, or a woman is come up against, or if a man, it, 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 particularly a, a father or a husband, is not protective, but is abusive, that is a terrible, terrible sin against God. Terrible sin against God and against God's design. It ought not to be. And we need to step up to the plate for women who are in those positions. 
God did not want that for his daughters. God wanted his daughters to be in this place of safety. And I just think of the image of um, even in our modern-day marriages when the father of the bride walks, the, fa- walks the, the, the girl down the aisle, and then what does he do? Gives her to the groom and whispers under his breath, you touch her, you hurt her, I'll kill you. <laughs> right? Because there's that, that element there of that. And the other thing that we see here, that the fact also that woman was created within the boundaries of a household also implies that there's a unique connection to the home for women. And we've lost that, I think, often in our generation, that we are wired to um, create a place more than guys are. KP, who is it on Pinterest? It's 95% women, right? Because we're like, oh man, I know, I spent way too much time on Pinterest. I'm thinking of redoing my kitchen cupboards. Like, you know, I'm going, I'm asking Brent, okay, well, what about this color? What about this color? And he's like, I don't care. (laughs) But there's just something, and it's not, it's not the physical place. It's like a place of spiritual growth and nourishment. That's what a woman does. You can create this home. You can create a place where, where life happens in a way that guys are not wired to. And so there's a unique connection there, and I think that scripture does teach that in terms of primary responsibility, primary responsibility, um, guys have a bent towards and need to make sure that their, their families are provided for, that doesn't mean that women can't work. Women can work. And women need to make sure that their every, things are in order in the home. Okay? That's their, that, that, in a, and that's their responsibility, to make sure that the house is running well. doesn't mean the guy can't cook a meal or sweep the floor or help or that he isn't part of that. He's part of that, just as she may be a part of, of financial provision. But there's just, there's just a different bent so the bent is for the guys is you make sure that your family is provided for. And the bent for the women is you make sure your home is in order. Okay? And so I think that, that as we walk into that responsibility as women, that we see a great deal of blessing come into our lives. And when we reject it, we, we, we will see that there's, things just don't go as well for us as they could because it's part of God's design. Now God's design for manhood and womanhood is really amazing. And I think that we've lost sight of it. We don't really fully understand it. Um, Because of sin, there's a lot of baggage that we don't see exactly what it ought to be. But it really is spectacular. And men are to reflect the character and the strength and the love and self-sacrifice of Christ. And women are to reflect reflect the character and the strength and the responsiveness and the grace and the beauty of the bride he redeemed. So the sexes complement each other. And who we are as male and female complements each other. And even if you are not married, even if you're single, even if you never get married, who you are as a woman bears testimony to the great gospel story of who God created us to be. And it's a symbol. It's a symbol that points to something else. 
And that's why it's important to wrestle with it and to try and figure it out and to try and live it out as best as we can and to try and figure out what God has for us as women. Not talking about kind of a cookie-cutter pattern that we have to, because we're all different. You know, some of us are, are rodeo girls, some of us are biker girls, some of us are Susie Homemaker Frill girls. Not talking about that. God delights differences. But there is something unique to who he created you to be as a woman, and you need to figure that out and wrestle with it in order to display the beauty of God's design and to make the gospel attractive. And that's what this is all about, is to to have the type of life, to be the type of woman, to, to have the type of marriage, if you are married, that makes the gospel attractive. And I think as we go forward in history now with, with homes and marriages and gender being such a mess that more and more as we are women of the word, men of the word, as we live out our marriages to tell this story, we will make the gospel attractive and believable and people saying, I want that, I want that. There's a picture that I saw in, um, in the newspaper once. Um, it, was, it was a pretty cool picture because it was a picture of uh, work of restoration. And it reminded me of what God does in our lives. Um, there was this, there was this uh, painting that was discovered from the 1500s, and it was an amazing painting. Uh, but it had gone through uh, earthquake and was shattered, and artists had tried to piece it together. And over the years, they'd put a bunch of coats of paint on it, and it had it, it, really gotten dark, and, and you couldn't really tell the painting. And so a group of artists spent 10 years, and there were 50 specialists that spent all this time working on this painting in order to to bring it back up to snuff. And if you can just turn to it, the before and the after. This is the before and the after of this painting. Ten years of work, um, and now it's hanging and it's being restored. And in a way, the original painting was amazing, uh, but the work of restoration is even, in a way, more amazing because of how broken the original painting was. And I think of this in terms of redemption. I think this is a great picture of redemption, where the original work was amazing, it got all broken, but then the work of redemption, what Christ does on the cross for us, and how he takes us and restores and works on us, takes off the grime, fixes the broken pieces, brings all his expertise to bear on our lives as we cooperate with him in the process, and as we walk and we see him make things new. And I just think of that in terms of just even my own life where I just have so far to go and so much more work to do God has to do on me and yet he is making all things new. And even in terms of who we are as women, he is making all things new. And so I just pray as we go through the rest of this um, 
weekend talking about his grace, knowing that even if we are messed up, broken up, even if we wrestle with things and struggle with the things, um, in my next session I'll tell you about just probably, I'm probably the biggest struggler with womanhood ever. Um, maybe not ever, but, but womanhood has been a struggle for me in understanding it. But just that as we struggle with things, that he is making us new and that his grace pours onto us and he loves us as we are, where we are, and he's taking us to a better place. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for our time together. I thank you for what you revealed, that you reveal your grace even when we look into the face of a Uh, another woman or another man that you are telling your gospel story even in that in the um, everydayness of life in who we are as male and female in marriage you tell your gospel story and you call us to participate in your gospel story thank you for that thank you for this time together i pray that you may use your word and stir up in our hearts um, what you want us to learn where you want us to go in the mighty name of jesus amen